Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Thanks, Barnaby, very much for reading. A uh, very warm welcome to you if you've uh, joined us since we uh, started. Uh, just before we come to this wonderful passage, let's um, pray together. Our loving and almighty God, we, we pray this lunchtime that you would open your word to our hearts and that you would open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now today, in the lead up to Easter, I'm just going to spend a few moments reflecting uh, on the death of Christ and, and particularly, what does it mean? What does it mean for us today? And I want to start in a somewhat unlikely place and it's um, the KLF. Now, to those of you who don't know the KLF, they were one of the biggest bands of the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, I can see Josh. See, I can see Josh is here now. Josh is in the office of uh, the member for Westmoreland, uh, the honourable member for Westmoreland Lonsdale. And unlike you, Gary, he's very well acquainted with um, mainstream rock and roll and pop music. Anyway, the KLF. They had several massive hits, including the Acid House classic, Justified and Ancient, and which actually made them the best, the biggest sing, single selling act in 1991. Now, at the height of their success, they stunned their fans by quitting the music industry altogether and deleting their entire back catalogue of music. And they then carried out one last act for which they, they've now become more famous than their actual music. On the 23rd of August 1994, they withdrew £1 million in cash, which was the last remaining money from their records sales, and they took it to an abandoned boathouse on the island of Jura. There, they made a huge pile of this money in this boathouse, all of it £50 notes, and they burned it. They burnt the whole lot. It took two hours, apparently, for the whole lot to go up in smoke. And the understandable question that continues to be asked about this event is, what was the meaning of it? The KLF themselves have never given an answer. 
Was it some grand artistic statement that, uh, against the shallow and frivolous world of the pop industry? Was it just an entirely meaningless act, a tragic waste, frankly, of one million pounds? That's certainly been the majority view ever since, that it's just a tragic waste of money. And I wonder what you would say today. What is the meaning of the death of Christ? Because many people today, I think, would say that the meaning of Christ's death is just as obscure as what took place in that Jura boathouse almost 30 years ago. Maybe Jesus' death was some kind of heroic political revolutionary act against the tyranny of the Roman Empire. Maybe it was some kind of inspiring example of self-sacrifice. Or maybe the most that can be said of it is that it was just a tragic waste of uh, an inspiring life cut short. Well, do you know what? The, the wonderful thing is, we don't actually have to guess uh, at the answer to that question because here, in Mark's Gospel, an eyewitness account of the death of Christ, we are actually told the meaning of Jesus' death. And three and three things that happen around his death. And uh, I want us just to focus, if you can, just back up on your sheets on verses 33 to 39 that Barnaby read. And we're going to look at the, dark, the meaning of the darkness that takes place, the meaning of the cry, and the meaning of the curtain. So first, the darkness. As Jesus died, darkness fell over the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, so from midday until three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, what does this darkness mean? In the Bible as a whole, darkness is always a sign of God's judgment. And a central theme of the Bible from start to finish is that evil and injustice matter to God and that he must judge them and he will judge them. Because he's a God of justice, he simply can't ignore the injustice and evil uh, that go on in the world as if they don't matter. And this accords, I think, with our own deepest instincts. We, we care about the justice that we see in the world. That's why everyone's here in Parliament wanting to make a difference to injustice. We want it to be dealt with. But the problem for us also is that the injustice that we see out there in the world runs right through our own hearts too. So if we want God to judge the world, the awkward reality is, is that we will have to face his judgment too. And yet look, what's happening here at the cross? in this darkness of the cross. The darkness of God's judgment isn't coming down on us. It's coming down on Jesus instead. So you see, the darkness at the cross is, is the first sign of the meaning of his death. As he dies, he's actually bearing this judgment of God in our place. As one of Isaac Watts' great hymns puts it, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. So the darkness of the cross, it shows God's judgment coming down, not on us, but on Christ. Second, verse 34, you see the cry of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it's interesting, notice that he doesn't say, as he might well have done, looking around at the soldiers and all his sort of enemies gathered around the cross, my enemies, my enemies, why are you torturing and killing me? He, he cries out to God, my God, my God. 
he's not just experiencing physical suffering at the hands of his enemies, but he's experiencing spiritual suffering of being forsaken by God the Father. The darkness that surrounds the cross, we've seen, shows us uh, that the judgment of God is falling upon Jesus instead of us. And this cry from the cross shows us what, what that judgment of God consists of. It, it's to be forsaken by God, to be separated from God. You may have read the book or seen the film, Touching the Void. It's the true story of two climbers, Simon Yates and Joe Simpson. In 1985, they successfully summited the Sula Grande uh, mountain in the Peruvian Andes. But in their descent, they got caught in this violent storm. Joe fell, uh, was seriously injured, and was, was left suspended over a cliff, hanging only by a rope attached to his fellow climber, Simon. And Simon didn't know whether his friend was dead or alive, and he was gradually being pulled down the side of the mountain and was going to follow his friend uh, over the edge. So he made the decision to cut the rope to save himself. Joe then fell into a deep crevasse way, way below. And um, it's a long story uh, after this. But incredibly, Joe survived and made his way out of that crevasse and back into civilization. Now, the thing I want to pick up particularly about it is um, what he says about his experience of being down in this crevasse afterwards. He said, my abiding memory is an appalling sense of loneliness, a sense of being abandoned. He had an experience of deep, deep forsakenness. So just think about it, how much more extreme then Jesus, the Son of God, who has forever existed in perfect loving relationship with God the Father in all eternity, as he dies on the cross, experiencing the utter forsakenness of God's judgment upon the whole world, past, present and future, literally God tearing himself apart. But you can ask, why? Why? Jesus had lived a perfect life. What was he doing? He didn't deserve to be forsaken by God. And the answer is simply that he was forsaken by God instead of us. Now there's all sorts of potential avenues we could go down uh, in, in thinking about, well, what does that mean for us today? And I'm just going to pick on one for the sake of time, and, and it's this. Jesus' forsakenness by God the Father shows us, proves to us, that we really can be sure of God's forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. Every other religion in the world will tell you that the, the way to get right with God is by doing something. But Christianity turns religion completely on its head. It says that we can know the forgiveness of God because of what God has done already at the cross. Jesus was forsaken instead of us. He, he, he basically he did what we could never do. He, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live instead of us, and he died the death that we should have died instead of us. So that means there's nothing more that any one of us can do here today 
to earn God's forgiveness this Easter. It's all been done at the cross. There's a wonderful moment, you may remember it, from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, when at the end of his journey he finally arrives at the cross of Jesus. And this this burden of sin that he's been carrying on his back for the whole journey, he finally lets it go off his back when he gets to the foot of the cross and it falls down at the foot of the cross. And he's finally free from this burden of his sin. So, here's a question for us this Easter. Do we, do we need to do the same? Either for the first time, letting go of that burden of sin off our backs and at the cross of Jesus, or perhaps for the millionth time. Because at the cross of Jesus, he's done, he's done everything necessary for your forgiveness. So lay that burden down. But perhaps some of us are still thinking, oh, is that really true? Did Jesus actually succeed at the cross? Was this cry, was it, a, was it a cry of victory? Or actually, was it just a cry of despair? Well, to answer that, we're going to look at our, uh, the last event, the curtain, in verse 38. The curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was, it, it was as thick as a, as, as a human hand. And its message was very clear. There it was in the heart of the temple that there was to be this total separation between God, the holy God, and his people because of their sin. And only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies once a year and only then because of multiple sacrifices and cleansings. It was very clear that there was this separation between God and humanity. And as Jesus died, this temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. It was a clear demonstration that the the sacrifice to end all sacrifices had just happened at the cross. That separation that existed before between a holy God and his unholy people was now done away with. So that ripping of the curtain shows us his cry from the cross is not a cry of despair and defeat. It's actually a cry of victory. It really is. It proves that Jesus has fully and successfully borne the judgment of God in our place. So how should we respond? Well, I put the rest of that reading in because you can see some interesting responses to Jesus uh, in the whole of chapter uh, 15. You get the lazy soldiers uh, in verses 16 to 24. I mean, I've called them the lazy soldiers, and I think that's, I think that's right. They, they openly mock Jesus. They just see him as another failed political revolutionary. They simply can't be bothered to go beyond their lazy assumption that here's just another, here's just another political revolutionary who we're crucifying today. They don't see the significance of the, the darkness, the cry, the cursing. Or perhaps, are we in danger of being like the self-righteous religious leaders that you see in verses 31 and 32? They also mock Jesus and they shout to him. You see, he saved others but he can't save himself. If he comes down now from the cross, then we'll believe in him. But do you see the great irony of this? 
if they'd actually been paying attention to the, to the darkness, to, to the cry, to, to the curtain, they would, they would have realised that actually the only way he can save them is by staying on the cross, not coming down. They're blind to their need of forgiveness. They think that their religion is the way that they are good enough for God. But again, let's all think about that. If we were good enough for God, Jesus wouldn't have been on that cross in the first place. There would have been no need for him to die. Let's not make that mistake this Easter uh, in self-righteousness. Or are we perhaps like cowards, like Pilate in verses 2 to 15? You can see that he, he knows Jesus is innocent. But in the end, he hands Jesus over to be crucified because he wants to please the crowd and he wants to have an easy life. Let's not make the mistake of Pilate either. But, just to encourage us, there was at least one person at the death of Christ who realised something of the meaning of what was going on. And it's this Roman centurion. And think about it, he would have been a hardened career soldier. He would have witnessed many people die. But he'd never seen someone die like this. He'd seen this supernatural darkness that had taken place. He'd witnessed this cry of forsakenness as Jesus died. Now, doubtless, he didn't know the full significance of what had just happened, but he knew enough to be convinced that this was the Son of God who had just died on the cross. So, I'm going to pray now that this Easter, all of us might respond in faith like that first Roman centurion did. So let's, let's pray together for a moment. Heavenly Father, please help us to see the true meaning of the death of Jesus Christ this Easter. Help us to see that he bore your just judgment on our sin in our place. And so, help us to lay the burden of our sin and our failure at the foot of the cross and nowhere else. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.